Good afternoon, church. It's good to see you all. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for to study this text together today. We are in Exodus 23, so if you have your Bible, you can start finding it. And if we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Nino, one of the pastors and preachers here at Trails. And we as a church, we are studying the book of Exodus, and this year is your calling becoming who we are. Yeah. And if you have been wondering about the reasoning behind the name of this series, I want to explain it a little bit more today. Not that the other pastor didn't explain it, but I, I want to give him more perspective on these things. So from a biblical perspective, we can say that there are two important moments in the book of Exodus. The first one is God saving his people from slavery in Egypt. And God, through divine intervention, liberated them from Egypt, uh, calling them out, out of darkness they, are in, that they were living in, and bringing them to the state of freedom they have right now in the point of the text we have. And the second moment that we see happening is that, uh, and it was already announced by God beforehand uh, and before he saved his people, is that he saved them with a purpose. So, for example, we have Acts 6, uh, verse 7, we're going to have it on the screen here. Uh, God says, I'll take you to be my people, and I'll be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from, under the, uh, from the burdens of the Egyptians. Uh, and we have Exodus 9 13 as well, that says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So the things we see here, is that those people, those Israelites, they were saved to be the people of God, they were saved to know God, and they were saved to serve or worship God. So God had a clear purpose for them, not a purpose in terms of some tasks they should perform, but the people they should be. So God had an identity prepared for them. And that's what we are studying this year, is how they became who they were saved to be. And you might find strange the concept of becoming who you are, because why do you need to become something we are already, right? But think about like a newborn baby, for example. He's already a human being, but he needs to grow, right? And he needs to mature and to reach his full potential as a human being. So he's not a lesser human being when he cannot realize his full potential, but ideally... This full potential needs to become actuality. He need, needs to become reality. So he needs to walk, learn to walk, to talk, and everything that a human being can do. And studying how the Israelites are being taught and led by God to become the people of God is highly relevant in our day and age. And in this age in which the matter of identity is very, a very confusing one. So different from the assumption in the modern Western culture that we are be self-made men and women, and that we ourselves are the measure of the truth, and that we can determine what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, and that by ourselves we are capable of living a good life, the Bible presents us with a picture of human life that is only fully realized before God in faithful obedience. So we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 that men and women, they were created in the image and likeness of God, and that we are called to be fruitful, and multiply and fill the earth with more human beings in the image and likeness of God. And you're called to have dominion over the earth as God's representatives. So God did not create us as blank slates, as some people believe, but he gave us 
an identity. And when we think about obedience to God and what God commands us to do, He's commanding us to be the people we were created to be. And ultimately, sin is the desire to craft our own identity and be masters of our own destiny, being obedient to, our, to a word of our own making. And our lives become restless when we resist God's design and will for our lives. You will be like a fish trying to live out of the water in the land, or like a dog or any other animal trying to live under the water. Because you're trying to resist your nature. From a biblical perspective, rest, as Matt preached last week, flows from faith. Which is this trust in God's plans, purpose, and design for us and for our lives. And the rest that God has prepared for his people is much more than we lie eternally in beds made of clouds. The rest we receive is the blessing of finally being the people we were created to be. That's the rest you're going to receive. That's eternal life. You're going to finally be the people we were created to be. And now I want you to enter our text for today with this understanding in mind. I want you to have a clear picture of what God's doing to his people in this passage. And not just this passage, but in all, all the passages you're going to be studying in the future. So go to Exodus 23, verse 20 to 32. It says, <clears throat> sorry, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon, pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your, your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. No one shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the numbers of your days. And I will send my terror before, before you. And I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 28. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the, the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, and they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Amen. Let's pray before we get into the word of God. Lord, we, we are thankful because we, we have your word to, to help us, to teach us, 
And as we are having this conversation for, for the last few weeks, we have your word so then we can become the people you created us to be. And we ask that in this moment we can have our hearts changed and softened so we can receive your word. That everything that comes from this book can be according to your, your will, according to the things you, you have to say to this local church, and that your Holy Spirit can be ministering in the hearts of each one here, the things that are particular, and that because you know their hearts, you know each one of us here, and you know what you need in this afternoon. We, we trust in your, in your power, we trust not in our knowledge or capacity of understanding things, but in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to enlighten this word. And to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you have to say to your church in this moment. And we are thankful, God, because we, we know every time we pray, you hear our voices. Because of the work of Jesus in that cross. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing that's crucial for us to understand here today is who this angel of the Lord is. We, we see this angel of the Lord multiple times in the Old Testament. And it's not just an angel coming from the Lord, but it's the angel of the Lord. The Bible does not give us his precise identity, but we can gather some information about him in the different texts he appears so the angel of the Lord appears a couple of times in the book of Genesis, and I'm not going there today. And then he appears for the first time in our story in Exodus in the burning bush scene. Uh, Exodus 3, uh, verse 2, we're going to have here on the screen, says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet was not consumed. So the angel of the Lord was in the burning bush. And then we have, for example, Exodus 14, 19, that says, Then the, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So the angel of, the, of God was following the people of God in the desert as they were fleeing from Egypt. And so the angel of the Lord was present all the way from the liberation of the people from Egypt, then guiding them in the desert, and he will be the one who is bring, bringing and establishing them in the land that was given to them by God, as we read in our text for today. When you look at different apparitions of the, the angel of the Lord, he speaks as God. He speaks as God. And he identifies himself with God, and he exercises the responsibilities of God. And the people of God are supposed to act in full allegiance to him. So the, the first verses we, we had in our text from today, verse 20 and 21, if you go there again, it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the, this place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. It's clear that at least in some instance, the angel of the Lord is a theophany. What will it that's a theological term like when God appears, He presents Himself in a visible manner and in, and in a physical form, more specifically, here. 
So we see that this angel was given to them to guard them and bring them safely to the land that God has prepared for them. But not just this. The angel will go before them as they take possession of the promised land too. So verse 22 and 23, if you have your Bible open, says, But if you careful, carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. So it's interesting because you need to pay attention to his voice and do the things I say, the Lord say. Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and adversity to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and bring you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, I and I blot them out. So as they obey the angel of the angel of the Lord, God will be an enemy to their enemies, and the angel will go before the people of God and blot their enemies out. That's the God-given strategy to conquer Canaan, the Promised Land. So the angel is not just one guiding them to the place prepared by God, but he will fight for them and drive their enemies out of the land. God's the one leading the whole thing here. He saves them, he sanctifies them, he guides them, he conquers for them, and the people are supposed to follow, listen, and obey the Lord. God's not our co-pilot in this quest to become the people we are called to be. He's the one in command. He goes before us, and he opens the way for us to become, and to, to become who, who he prepares us to be. And he prepared the way for us to come into the land that he promised to us. It's interesting to realize that the obedience is not a condition to redemption, but it's expected of those who are saved. He expects them, expects them to be obedient. As we mentioned many times here, and it's worthy affirming again, God did not give commands to the people while they were slaves in Egypt. And because they were obedient, God saved them from there. Thinking about the law as a means for salvation is completely missing the point of the whole Old Testament. Salvation has always been, has always been an act of mercy from God. But as I said at the beginning, we need to understand that the purpose of our salvation and the purpose of the commands of the law of everything is because God's redeeming you and he wants you to become something. He wants to give you a new identity. And God's commands are his divine instructions to help us to become the people we are created to be. He's restoring our identity. And we need to, to understand this, understand more, have a more profound understanding of what slavery is. So is slavery is the dehumanization, is the robbery of our identities. Everything that robs us from identity is slavery. So the important question when you think about freedom from slavery is not just about changing your location, your address, or opportunities you have, your rights, or possession, but it's about the restoration of the individual identity. So the most, most important question to be answered is, what is the self? What is our true identity? As human beings. Because that's the only way that we can restore people to a state of freedom. And that's what God's doing with his people in the desert. They are learning, they are created to obey God and to rest in him. And we see this from the beginning in the creation of Adam and Eve. They are created and then God does what? He gives them commands. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, eat from all the trees. In the garden. Don't eat from that one tree. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's why it's important for us to understand that God, as I said, is not the co-pilot, but he is the commander of our lives. He's not here just to help us, but in obedience to him, we live in the way that we reach the full potential of our nature as human beings. So we see in this text we are reading today some warnings and blasts being announced related to the obedience we should, we should have to God. So verse 21, for example, he says, He will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Verse 22, he says, But if you carefully obey his voice and do that, all that I say then, Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. In verse 33, he says, for if you serve their gods, you will surely be as near to you. So there is lots of ifs, and there are lots of conditions, lots of warnings here. And what we make of those? Are those warnings conditions for salvation? Is it saying like, if you do all those things, if you obey, going to save you? The answer here is yes and no. You need to observe that these warnings are only applicable to the people who, are, who have already become God's property. They, they are already saved, in a sense. But it's important to understand the dynamic that's happening here. Th- these people were saved to be the people of God and for Him to be their God. Now, if you don't walk in obedience to Him and they worship other false gods, they're making their salvation void. Their salvation is becoming worthless. So in the process of saving them, we can say there are three steps here. God conquers their enemies and gives them freedom. They are now saved. But now the second step is about living as free people and remaining free and or saved. And God's guiding them in the spirit of transition so that they can remain free. God's keeping them free. And finally, God promises to establish their freedom once and for all in the promised land. Removing from among them everything that can bring them back to a state of slavery. So these warnings are very real. They need to carefully listen and obey God to don't go back into the burden of slavery. When God says that we should not act and rebel against the angel, the reason is that his name is in him. In other words, rebelling against the angel of the Lord is rebelling against the Lord himself. And it's interesting to know that the text says that they should not rebel against the angel of the Lord, for he will not pardon your transgression, their transgression. So the implication here is that this angel could potentially forgive their rebellion against the Lord. Which confirms what I said at the beginning, that the angel is not just an angel, but he exercises the responsibilities of God himself. The only one who can actually forgive sins. For God to allow sin and rebellion against his commands is to allow the world and his people to fall into slavery again. And sin will not be forgiven. Sins need to be paid. And atonement for sin is necessary. The, the question is then, who will be punished for the sin of the people when they sin against the angel of the Lord, when they rebel against the angel of the Lord? But before we go there, we need to realize that the same is true about the church. In the same way God saved us from our slavery to sin, 
and Satan, we are not, not called to persevere in our salvation. For example, if we're going to have Galatians 5.1, the screen here, it says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And then you do what? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So you need to keep yourself free. Romans 6, 22 and 23 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it sends eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, you see, now that you have been set free of sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's an eternal life. So you need to have those fruits. Your salvation should lead you to have those fruits of sanctification, of freedom. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we receive the salvation. We do what with our salvation? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we are called to constantly stand firm and walk in the freedom that was given to us. Working our salvation with fear and trembling. Bearing the fruit of righteousness and not submitting ourselves again to any type of slavery. And the same that was true for the Israelites, true for us, now, for us now. Obedience is expected of those who are saved. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teach them what? To obey everything that I have commanded. And surely... I am with you always, to the very end of the age. We receive here the promise that as we go and fulfill the great commission, Jesus will surely be with us, always, to the very end of the age. But we need to go. That's the promise. I'll be with you as you go, as you obey, as you follow me. And we have many warnings in the Bible that are given to the church as well. I'm gonna, I want to read some for you. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. If you want to open in your Bible. It says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their laws, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Let's read Romans 11 now. 19 to 22. It says, Then you say, Branches were broken off, so that I might be drafted in. That's true. They were broken off. He's talking about the Israelites who were not saved. They were removed from the vine. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will you spare you. 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provide you continually in the kindness of God. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Did you pay attention to these warnings here? He says it's impossible for those who have been once enlightened and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. And then in Romans it says they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. Because if God did not spare the natural branch, He will not spare you. So the question, like, when we understand the gospel of grace, that salvation is by grace alone, yes. But you think so that Paul and the author of Hebrews, they are just bluffing here? They're just saying those things to, I don't know, maybe make it then a little scared. No, they're, those, are, they're, those are true warnings. They are not bluffing. These, are, these warnings are real as the warnings given to the people of Israel. But we cannot forget that our obedience is not the reason of our salvation. So how should we receive these warnings, right? So yes, we belong to a gracious and loving God. And yes, He's patient and giving us what we, we don't deserve. And what's the response that's expected from us? Romans 2, verse 4 and 5 give us a hint. going to have it here on the screen. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of the wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the riches of the kindness of God and His forbearance and His patience are meant to lead us to repentance. So don't presume you can just go on sinning because God's merciful and patient. If you do that, you're storing up wrath for you on the day of judgment. And the question before us is, if you actually, if you really experience the mercy and the goodness of God, and you are not brought to repentance. What else is there for you? Other than judgment. If not even the goodness and the, the love and the mercy of God. Was enough to make you repent. What else can do that? What hope you have? Because in your rebellion against God. And lack of repentance. You put yourself back into the slavery that Christ died to save you from. That's what the author of Hebrews says, to their laws they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Walking in rebellion as a Christian would be taking the death of Christ for you and the salvation given to you and throwing into the garbage you're subjecting Christ to public disgrace. So the dynamic here is very simple. 
God will not just forgive sins without, without the just payment for them. He's a just judge. Someone needs to pay for it. Someone will take the damage for your sin, for our sin. So you can trust or have faith in the goodness of God and that he'll take the loss for your sin and that he'll make and he made the payment for our sins in Jesus Christ and then you'll be forgiven. Or you can decide to pay your sin yourself and you can face the wrath of God and pay for your own sins. But now saying that you trust God for the forgiveness of your sin, you say you believe in him to be taken in damage for your sin, that he died the death you deserve, and you do not repent for your sin, you're, you're mocking God. It's an attempt to subject God to public disgrace, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to public disgrace. But as Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, Chapter 6, verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So, my friend, do you profess faith in Jesus? Do you say you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? Do you say you're born again as part, and part of God's people? So pursue a life of obedience with all your strength. And when you sin, the same strength you sin, you should repent from sin and put your faith in Jesus and rejoice in the salvation, receiving the freedom that's available through him. Now I want you to focus on one last aspect before we go to our conclusion. We need to see here that God does not just want to redeem the individuals here in our text. But he is giving them a redeemed place to live, a promised land. So some things we need to understand about this land from our text. Verse 20, he says, to bring you to the place I have prepared. So this land is a, pla a place prepared by God. It's not a place they would choose. Neither is God responding to a demand. They are asking for a land, and then God said, yeah, I have this land. No, God prepared the land for them. And God went ahead of them and prepared this land for them. Verse 25, he says, You bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. So it is a place of blessing. This land is a place of blessing. It's a place the food and the drink are blessed. And there, there will be no sickness. It's a redeemed land that bears good fruit. Verse 26, he says, None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number, the number of your days. So they will be fruitful and multiply and live long life as it was supposed to be from the beginning, from creation. In verse 27, I'll send my terror before you and I'll throw into confusion all the people against who shall come. You shall come. And I'll make your, all your enemies turn their backs to you. So there will be no enemies in this land to attack them, to oppose them. They will have peace and rest in all the areas of their lives. And how God does that, how God prepare, gives them this land, it's progressively. Not because God cannot do it all at once. 
but it's for their own sake. Verse 29, he says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. In verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So we see here that God is not just the God who ordains the ends, but he is the God who ordains the means. He's the one in control of how things will get to the point he wants them to get. He's not saying, like, I gave you this land, just go and take possession, just do your own thing. No, he's saying, like, how are you going to do it? How are you going to give this land? It's, a, it's progressing. And he's assuring them that he will not just defeat their enemies, but he will defeat their enemies in a way that's perfect for them and the, their capacity of take possession of the land they re, they're receiving. So many times uh, we can have plans that are well intended, but they're poorly executed. And they end up causing more damage, more harm than good. But God is perfect. And God cares about every single step we take. He cares about the whole plan. He leads the whole thing. And one thing that's very important for us to grasp in our text today is that in the same way, that we saw in the last two weeks and how God gives them the law and the application of the law to teach them how to live. He's now presented to them his plan of redemption for their circumstances. So coming back to our initial conversation, when we talk about our identities, we need to remember that we are ourselves plus our circumstances. It's not hard to grasp that you draw your identity from the family you grew with, the country or countries you live in, the language you speak, the hardships you went through, and even the good things in your life as well. Everything around us, which we call our circumstances, gives us a sense of identity. And God has a place prepared for us. He does not just want to redeem you as an individual, but He wants to redeem your circumstances. Look at what Apostle Peter preaches in Acts 3, verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So in the same way that God promised to blot out their enemies, the, the enemies of the Israelites, now Peter is talking about the blotting out of our own sin in the times of, re, of refreshing coming. So we need to realize that the biggest enemy we have in this quest of becoming the people we are supposed to be, we are created to be, our biggest enemy is sin. It's sin that causes us to, to be dehumanized. And it, it makes this process from the inside out. That's why it's so powerful. But Jesus is going before us in this battle. And he's blotting out our sins. He's blotting out death and the devil. He's driving out our enemies. And how do we respond to that according to Peter? We repent. The response to the gospel, the response for people who are having their sins blotted out, is repentance. 
And Peter talks about Jesus being with God, the Father, until the time of restoring all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So God's restoring creation right now. He's preparing a place for us. He's not just restoring lives, but he's restoring our circumstances. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 says, But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So we are living this time in which all the enemies of Christ are being made his footstool. And then he will come back to take his kingdom, to establish his kingdom. But while we wait for this time to come, and we are here as the church of Christ, and as Jesus goes before us, defeating our enemies, that's why we establish a local church. We're those embassies of the kingdom to come. So the church should be a glimpse of this place of blessing that God's preparing for us. The church is the way we can experience the redemption of our circumstances. It's partial, but we can experience some of this here and now. Now, watch this. What we should do, what they should do as they enter the land. And it's going to be a good lesson for us. Verse 24, going back to Exodus 23. So the instructions to the Israelites as they enter the land is, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do it as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Verse 32 says, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Verse 33 says, And, you shall, shall not dwell, they, and they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, you surely be as near to you. So it's interesting for us to see that they are not the ones defeating the enemy. But God leaves them the task of destroying the things that were left behind by them. And to not invite them back into the land. And the same is true for us today, church. As Jesus built his church and brings us to this place, we are now responsible for destroying everything that belongs to the old life. And we are to utterly overthrow all the false gods from our midst. And that's the way we cooperate in our sanctification. Now having our enemies defeated, we enter and destroy. We put to death everything that belongs to the old order. Sin has no power over us anymore because we are in Christ. And now all we need to do now is to overthrow the idols that remain in our lives. And in the same way, we are not to make a covenant with sin or invite our enemies back into our lives and communities. We need to reject all the sin and idolatry of the world. Those things cannot have a place in our lives, in our churches. And that's your and my role. That's how we participate in our union with Christ in the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that's how relevant your sanctification is and mine is and ours as a church is. We don't want to be those who just throw in their garbage the freedom that God gives us. 
privately and as a church. We want to honor, live a life worthy of the gospel that saved us. And now to finish this time in the word of God, I want you to go back to where we start, the angel of the Lord. He goes before the people to conquer Canaan. It, it's interesting that when we, we study the, this angel of the Lord in the Bible, he ceases to appear after the incarnation of Christ. Angels are mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. The angel of the Lord is never mentioned in the New Testament again after the birth of Christ. So it's possible that the appearance of the angel of the Lord were a manifestation of Jesus before his incarnation. Some theologians believe that, and they called it there's a Christophany. It's a manifestation, physical manifestation of Christ before he was incarnated. But whatever the case, whether the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnated appearance of Christ, or appearance of God the Father. He's the physical presence of God among his people. He was. But we have in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the most concrete manifestation of the presence of God in history. And he's God walking among us, going before us, defeating our enemies and preparing a life of blessing for us. Christ is preparing for us a place in which our bread and water will be blessed, sickness will be no more. And we will live in this place forever, finally resting from all the labor of this life. And the God's call for you today is the same he gave it to the Israelites. Instead of saying, I send the angel of the Lord, he says, I send Jesus before you to guard you on the way and to bring you back, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Just pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. Because there is no life apart from Jesus. And there is no forgiveness apart from Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus today. Repent. Listen to his voice. Obey him. And he will bring you to a place of rest. And you finally find your true self. Many people, they, they want to find their true identity. They use all the kinds of things from personality tests to changing their bodies, everything just to finally know who they are. But the only way for us as humans being to know who we actually are and to find our true identity and become the people we are created to be is by following Jesus. I want to end with a phrase from Augustine. He says, you, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. And God wants to give you rest today. Amen? Let's pray.